0: Hello listeners and welcome to Up Next with Alice and Dave, a podcast where we interview interesting people who live everyday lives. My name is Alice and I'm here with my co-host Dave.
1: Good afternoon and welcome to the next episode of Up Next. This is the second in the series um, and the first for 2021.
0: And we are international, we can't uh, forget that. So we have listeners, hello listeners from Australia, New Zealand, the United Kingdom, the United States and Spain.
1: Who would have thought after our first episode... (laughs) The Christmas special <laughs> at that—that that we would go international straight away. Alice, yeah,
0: huge news. So I suppose Dave and I wanted to start this podcast because we wanted to challenge your sort of selective exposure that reflects your pre-existing biases, um, with the news and interesting articles that you're fed through your social media accounts, um, and sort of challenge those beliefs uh, and get you discuss different topics that you probably wouldn't normally discuss, um, at the dinner table with your friends and family. So. We have a really exciting guest today, and we'll introduce her very shortly. But before we get into that, Dave, how were your holidays?
1: Absolutely fantastic. It's the longest I've taken off. In a, I had four weeks off. I think the longest was my honeymoon at three weeks. Uh, but that was it, a long
0: time ago. That
1: was that was tw- <laughs> well September last year was twenty five years. So yeah, a long time ago. <laughs> <Dave's> Alice, <old>. <laughs> <laughs> a lot older than you, anyway. So no, really good. How about you, Alice?
0: I have to admit, my holidays weren't plan A, B, C, D, or E. I was actually meant to get married in New Zealand, but the borders are shut, so that didn't happen, and all of the other plans were changed because of COVID, and I ended up coming back to work a week early, which is a bit depressing, considering how excited I was for the four weeks off. But three weeks was still lovely, and I still got a bit of sun in the Sunshine Coast, so that's nice.
1: No, I was thinking about you. You, um, Everything that you seem to have planned did seem to go yeah. wrong, so... But at least you've got time to spend with your family yes. and some of your friends and...
0: Plenty of people worse off, so I can't complain. We live in a beautiful part of this world. So.
1: Absolutely. So let's get going.
0: Yeah. So our guest today, we have Associate Professor Eliza Whiteside. Now, Eliza was diagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 28, and she used her ordeal to refocus her own career. Eliza works at the University of Southern Queensland as a researcher for cancer. Um, Eliza is also now the lead researcher on a new project looking at wound management and the use of traditional medicines to treat and prevent skin infections in regional and remote Australian communities, particularly in Aboriginal communities. So welcome, Eliza, and thank you for being here.
2: Oh, thank you for inviting me. Very exciting.
0: (laughs) And how were your holidays? Did you Uh, have time off?
2: (laughs) Yes, I did, actually. Um, So my family are all in Melbourne and Victoria, uh, Mm. and my husbands are all in, uh, well, mainly around Sydney. So we had planned to do the trek to Sydney and then to Melbourne. Um, unfortunately Sydney didn't happen. So we ended up just going to Melbourne, um, but having a lovely Christmas with my 95 year old grandmother um, and some other family, and then quickly scooted back into Queensland, um, and to have COVID checks, COVID tests. Um, but they were all negative. So, um, but it was lovely. It was really Oh, you're lucky
0: to get to Melbourne. I know So you can either get to Sydney or you can get to Melbourne. I was meant to go to Sydney as well, but that's all right. What can we do? Mm -hmm. So, Eliza, um, I know we just gave a very um, brief introduction of yourself, but before we get sort of too too deep into um, our chat today, we'd sort of like would like you to paint a bit of a picture of yourself. So tell us about your childhood, what it was like, your family, and growing up.
2: Okay. Well, as I said, my I grew up in. Uh, Victoria. So I was born in Melbourne and then moved just outside of uh, Melbourne to a town called Backus Marsh. Um So I was there and, and I'm the eldest of four children. Uh, and so I lived in Backus Marsh until high school and my family moved uh, to Queensland. And so we lived in Rockhampton um, and then Bundaberg. Uh, and then for uh, university, I uh, decided to be to go for marine biology uh, yeah. and so traveled to James Cook University. Um, but in addition to marine biology, because everyone told me I wouldn't get a job as a marine biologist, oh. <laughs> so I also uh, did a major, a double major with biochemistry. So um, I was quite uh, inspired to study science. I had a terrific science teacher um, in high school, and uh, and also a, a primary school teacher who was um, uh, really pushed science. Yeah. So I think that
0: makes such a difference. I dropped really out does. of science as soon as I could in school, and I think it was because I was just so bored for my teacher. I'm um, no offense if they're listening, but they're probably not. But <laughs> it, it makes such a difference.
2: It really does. And that's why, you know, teaching has been such a huge part of my uh, career, and that's why I can see it can have such potential to. Inspire, but um, to do the opposite as well. So, definitely. So,
1: was it the scuba diving that drove you to marine biology? <laughs> yes, I
2: loved it. Well, I, I'd never <laughs> scuba dived before starting marine biology, but um, uh, at uh, JCU, I was able to do a lot of uh, diving and I actually volunteered at uh, the local museum, which was part of the Museum of Queensland, um, and so got to do diving as part of that job. And How so cool. It was yeah, good, I've, So, yeah. a big,
1: avid scuba diver in my, back in my, I was a uh, scuba instructor back in my day. Oh, so, really?
2: Oh, how
0: exciting. Yeah, really exciting. Paddy or Nowy? Paddy. Paddy, yeah, I was Paddy too. Yeah, mm. Dave loves to drop in all of um, his sporting career in these podcasts, <laughs> so just be careful. <laughs> nothing, <laughs> wrong, <laughs> nothing wrong with that. Last episode, he was busy telling a friend how much of a professional rugby player he was.
1: Right. So. <laughs> still not as good as was. <laughs> yeah. I
2: was going to say, yeah, competing. Um, so, yeah, so then uh, in my uh, um, honours year at, uh, at James Cook, I um, did a little project around medical research. So my Honor's was around um, uh, looking at this, or essentially finding out the DNA sequence of a uh, gene that was important for photosynthesis in um, algae that lived in giant clams. <laughs> so <laughs> that's so specific. Yeah, it's very specific. So, so how did you come specific? across? Well, across that? it wasn't my choice. So oh, as okay. an honor student, you just take on whatever project right. the supervisor has. So, however, the skills that I learned were transferable into pretty much at that point any other kind of molecular biology uh, project. So, yeah. um, so as part of that, I was able to do a small um, uh, project looking at more medical research orientated. Um, and so some family members had been unwell um, and I sort of thought I would prefer to use my skills as much as I loved scuba diving and um, but really the job prospects um, prospects weren't weren't there. So mm. I um, uh, applied for jobs and I actually had applied for a job at SeaWorld at the same time as applying for a job um, at Queensland University wow. of Technology. So the QUT one was the molecular biology um, and looking at a cancer um, sort of research project. And uh, the SeaWorld project was more, not you didn't need a degree, <laughs> you needed right. the diving bit, um, but I was pretty much Polypses. going to be looking, you know, cleaning tanks and yeah. and all the rest of it. And as exciting as working at SeaWorld, um, be, yeah. I just thought, you know, really, yeah, I was sensible. Yeah. Um, sometimes Which- I think it was... One of those—it um, was one of those moments that was like a, you know, sliding doors kind of moment. But uh, um, but I chose KET. You chose up the
1: you chose the grown-up decision. I did, <laughs> I
2: did, I did. So um yeah, so uh yeah, I guess at the ripe old age of twenty-one, it was um yeah, I went down the path of medical research. Did
0: so much before 20 It's Quite amazing. Just before we um, move on to um, the cancer research you just mentioned, I'm just so intrigued by them not being many jobs in marine biology in Australia. Considered we're surrounded by beautiful reefs and the ocean. I mean, we're an island.
2: Yeah, I mean we're going back now two decades, over two decades, um, and the environment there. I guess the funding just wasn't there for research. Yeah. Okay. Um, the Acanthaster which is the crown-of-thorns starfish issue, um, was it was there, but it wasn't. I guess how it is now. Um, there is a lot more funding for uh, for that kind for marine biology and mm. and, and uh, because that of the, research.
1: The bad situation with Absolutely. the ecosystem and the in the reef yep. and stuff. It's yeah.
2: such a shame. It's mm. bit, the funding's come a bit late.
1: The it always seems asked. to come late, doesn't it? Yeah, so. yeah,
2: but um, but I think you know, for me, I I guess I also was being driven down the path of of um medical research mm. and wanting to help people. Yeah, um, so that was coming to the fore as well.
0: So, talk to us about
2: um, the cancer research you're doing at QUT. Yes. So, um, my so I started off as a research assistant uh, and uh, a technician setting up classes for um, medical laboratory scientists and and uh, biomedical science students, and um, uh, then I had the opportunity to start my PhD. So, my research assistant project was looking at um, the uh, I guess, the, the factors that are involved in recurrent um, miscarriage that can occur. So uh, in some couples, um, just, you know, there's just an infertility issue and it, mm-hmm. uh, the pregnancy occurs, but then it just isn't sustained. So that was the space, <clears throat> sorry, that was a space where my research was. So it was asking um, the question around, well, what are the factors that um, influence that ability of the that early stage embryo to actually implant um, in the uterus and establish a successful pregnancy. Mm. Um, so then I had the opportunity to do my PhD. And so the question that I wanted to ask was the similar kind of factors that are involved in you know, that, that embryo implanting into the uterus um, are also similar factors to what a cancer cell um, produces in order to invade from a primary tumor um, into a, a secondary site. So they they do that by degrading the tissue around where they are, and then moving into blood vessels or the lymphatic system, um, and then moving to another site. So um, I used a model of uh, of a cancer that actually occurs in the uterus called choriocarcinoma. Um, thankfully, it's a very rare um, uh, condition, but um, but I compared that with the normal situation of pregnancy, um, a successful pregnancy. And so yeah. we looked at what factors were um, increased or decreased um, and could we apply those to the cancer model to try and restrict that cancer um, uh, invasion, if you will. Wow. So
1: you kind of went from working with clams,
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> fertilisation for humans and bit to produce mm-hmm. babies, to cancer research into um, unsuccessful pregnancies and that sort of thing yeah absolutely so, that's the the be all and end all of the short version of what you well
2: then well then because you would I have only still get...
1: been very like you you did your first mm. degree and finished about 21 and then went on through to um your phd so yeah. how old were you when you were you? doing this PhD? yeah so i
2: guess my i uh i graduated with my phd what was i so i finished my lab work um just before I turned 26, I think. Oh, God. I'm so <laughs> unaccomplished so, right now. No, no. It's a different, it was a different world back there. Like it just, oh, I don't know. keep just, telling myself that. <laughs> yeah, things happened in a different way. But um, yes, I finished my lab work on a Friday and then I had my son on the Monday. Wow. So he oh, was wow. in June. Just
0: because you just mentioned your son, mm. I'm really intrigued to know you were talking before about um, infertility. Mm. Because you knew so much about it, were you nervous to have kids?
2: Um, I think it actually inspired me to have kids at a younger age than I otherwise would have. So I guess when um, when my husband and I got married, we were thinking, oh, you know, we'll wait till we're in our thirties. Um, yeah. And and then I think, yeah, being in that environment uh, and knowing the research literature and how it is such, a, you know, it's such an amazing feet of of nature, um, actually fertilization and then implantation, and you know how many things can go wrong. So I guess it probably did. Um, not that you know, twenty just turning twenty six was the age that I was thinking I'd have my first um, mm. pregnancy. Um, but you know, I think looking back um, and what came next, I think it was a blessing that um, that 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 did happen. So, so, so when
1: yeah. when you when you yeah you, know, you you've just touched on it there. When you say what came next, so you know, at, at the age of 28 you were you was diagnosed with stage 3 cancer, I mean, that in itself is very frightening, you just, you know, completed your PhD, you just had your first child, and then, which should have been the happiest day of your life, and then, and was the happiest day of your life, no doubt, but then to be given that sort of news at the age of 28, which is no age at all to, to be given that sort of uh, news and information. Um, can you tell us a bit what, when you was given that news, what was, you know, the first thing that came to to mind?
2: Yeah. Um, I don't think about it that often, you know, No, I can imagine. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but I guess, yeah, it was, um, you know, I'd found, I found the lump myself. Um, so I think it was January. Um, I did the thing that you do, which is to monitor it and see if anything changes, um, in the February, uh, I went to the the um, the staff GP. I was working at Royal North Shore Hospital in Sydney, um, and then she said, "Let's monitor it for a, a month." And so I went back every week. And a month's a long time. A month, so, yeah, so, so two months now. Yeah, yep. so you
1: you monitored it for a month, yep. and then the doctors are monitoring yep. for the. But monitor. it was
2: really unlikely because I'd breastfed, I'd had a child at a, you know, all the the risk factors. Mm. I didn't have any of them. No family history of breast cancer. There was absolutely nothing that would indicate that that would be a possibility. And again, it was still really rare um, mm. for younger women to be diagnosed. So, um, yeah. So I again another month, and then we had a I had a scan, um, but again because of my age and the fact that there were five lesions so five sort of shadows on the ultrasound um and quite large the largest was about 2.5 centimeters in diameter so mm. it was still sort of like well you know it's really unlikely it's most likely to be a benign condition um so let's just see how it goes and so God. you know but I didn't want it to be anything like I was really busy I was in you know at I was lecturing mm. at Sydney Uni. I was doing my um, uh, postdoc, which is the the experiments kind of research that you do um, after your PhD, and um, in uh, what was called the human it's it called the human fertility, human reproduction unit. Um, And so, yeah, I was... So you were yes. just way too busy to be worried about you know, having I, cancer. You'd just yeah.
1: got a new, you know, new, fairly new baby. Yeah.
2: Had a two-year-old. So yeah. were
1: you,
0: were you yeah. worried when they said just monitor? Were you thinking, oh, that's probably not the best thing to do or you were just so busy it didn't even
2: cross your mind? I just want... I didn't want it to be. Yeah, cool. So it actually fit with my... Yeah.
0: Your know, psyche. My mind. Yeah. Law of
2: attraction, I do not
0: have breast cancer.
2: Absolutely. And, and again, remember, that, uh, I guess... You know, there was no Google back then. Yeah. Um, you could go onto Yahoo, but there wasn't a lot of information out there. So I could go to the medical literature. But again, it was really unlikely that I was going to have cancer at that age. Especially
1: so, 28. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. So it was only when I was encouraged mm. by a friend to go and have a second opinion um, and that this friend would look after my son because then she's like, nope, you know, no more excuses, just go, um, and then had a second opinion. So that was in the July Um, and then I had, uh, 10 lesions on the ultrasound and they did a mastectomy, uh, sorry, a, um, mammogram, you know, so they did a mammogram at that stage as well. Um, so a mammogram is not usually indicated for someone younger because it doesn't actually, um, generally show any, um, kind of breast cancers um but they did that and it did come up suspicious um and then the largest that largest uh, lesion was over five centimeters so wow. um whatever it was was really fast growing yeah. i found
1: uh, you know i suppose being in that situation i find six months to be such a long time and uh, mm-hmm. and i'm not sh- and i'm you know i'm not 100 percent sure if research has changed now but that to me Seems really strange even even at 28 yeah. to have, you know, to diagnose something quite early yourself and then six months on before you'd had a mammogram. That just seems really strange.
2: Yeah, I guess it was, but it was circumstance. It was just how it is. And you,
1: mm.
2: like looking back, I think oh, I was such a doofus. But at that <laughs> time, I was using the information that I had mm. um, to make a, a call on with, with you know, and again, the GP said, "Look, let's just watch and wait. It doesn't, you know, nothing is jumping out at me. Um, you know, a biopsy wasn't indicated by, um, yeah, how it was. So and, you, was,
1: and all, but all hmm. this is happening, and you're you've been working in cancer research yeah, itself, I, and then.
2: But again, it wasn't, you know, if if I I had a friend who um, did her PhD in breast cancer, and again, you know, I knew all the risk factors, and I didn't, I didn't actually. So it was yeah. probably a bad thing because. I didn't mean the of, boxes, yeah. yeah, I didn't meet all of what I knew mm. was most likely to go with a breast cancer diagnosis, so um, yeah, but um, but anyway, it is what it is, so uh,
1: and all and all your work with um women in around breast cancer is that a normal kind of thought process that they go do they try and block it out and and i mm. I'm not saying you ignored it because you had the facts there in front of you and and this was nineteen years ago, let's mm. say, but is that a normal like um, process that a, a woman would go through in first diagnosis? It's like, how am I going to get through this? Such a busy life. Let's try and just carry on as normal as we can.
2: Look, I think everyone reacts differently. Um, I suspect these days where there is so much more awareness um, mm. and even just the fact, um, so what was it? About ten years after my diagnosis, Kylie Minogue was diagnosed as a younger woman, mm. and so that brought it to the attention of the public that it can actually happen. And I think Belinda Emmett was another Australian who was younger. And, and that was, was a shock when
1: Kylie announced that she yeah. had because it was s- supposedly so young, but you were so mm. much younger than Kylie mm. at the time.
2: Yeah. So um. Yeah. So um. So I guess you know public information, and that's why it's so powerful to tell stories because I think that can actually impact. So if I had have known of somebody or it, I guess that may have impacted and I may have thought, well, there is a possibility, there is a chance that um, that I have. So it was only when I heard when my, my friend's um, uh, fiancé had said that he was um, studying medicine and he had said that they'd done, uh, done a case study um, at uni around you know, a younger woman with breast cancer so it was only that he said look just go and just get a second opinion because it is a possibility mm. so it's just that you know what is a possibility and yeah, yeah. but I, I can't go backwards no <laughs> but, no, no. And- but i do so look at it and think that mm.
0: you were diagnosed with stage three breast cancer um can you talk us through what the different stages are because i mean i don't fully understand so i'm sure a lot of our listeners won't
2: either Yeah, for sure. So, um, and the staging does differ for different types of cancer. Okay. Um, And even within breast cancer itself, we now know that there are at least 10 different molecular subtypes of cancer, Um, but how we classify them as far as treatment goes are generally around, um, so the stage, so whether they have um, gone beyond the breast cancer um, capsule. So within the, the breast tissue, you have ducts and lobules, so a ductal um, breast cancer, um, an invasive ductal breast cancer, which is the most common, is one that has started in the ducts but it's actually gone out into the other tissue of the breast um, and uh, and in depending on the stage. So stage two is where it's gone sort of locally invasive yeah. into the breast um, and stage three is where it's actually gone um, often into the chest wall behind um, the right. breast cancer, into the lymph nodes which are what we call the axilla, so underneath the armpits, uh, lymph nodes that sit around underneath the collarbone. Um, So we call that, so it's locally invasive, but the cancer has actually taken on some new characteristics, um, which are generally due to mutations in the DNA Mm. uh, that mean that they have these extra abilities. And so that goes back to my PhD around the invasiveness. So they turn on or they um, increase the amount of certain um, invasion genes um, to give them these extra attributes. And so stage four is the worst yeah. um, uh, stage in breast cancer. And so that's where the cancer has actually um, invaded dis- distantly. So it's gone from the breast tissue through the blood supply or the lymphatic supply and gone, say, into the bone, oh, um, well, into yeah. the lungs, brain. That's um, when it becomes cells. It does because, you know, cancer cells are, um, are pretty clever, Uh, They travel in packs, (laughs) um, but they're often too small for us to actually be able to see. So once we know that they've gone somewhere else, they could be anywhere. Right. Um, And so they also take on some other attributes that make them difficult to treat. So um, it's hard for chemotherapy um, to have an impact. Um, or things like the other treatments, such as radiation therapies, um, to actually um, kill those cells. So, so that stage four is, is the difficult stage to treat. Um, but again, there are a lot of women out there now that are living with stage four um, cancer, and I know several of them, wow. and they're pretty wow. amazing, pretty amazing people. Um, and so we we do have some some therapies that are able to keep the cancer at bay, um, treat the side effects because. Not only the side effects of the cancer, but also of the treatment. Um, mm-hmm. So, so things. So, through medical research, even in the the nineteen years, uh, have you know we've just come such a long way.
1: So, did your career lead more into that breast cancer research? As as from your experience of breast cancer, did you carry on into that breast cancer research?
2: Yes. So I did. Um, not so much inspired um, by my own personal journey, but by the women that I met. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I was fortunate enough to be admitted uh, into a clinical trial, um, testing a new type of, um, of chemotherapy agent, um, and uh, I can talk about that later, but it was um, with my diagnosis the for me, um, besides the risk of dying, which was there, but I focused on the, the concept that I wouldn't be able to have another child, <laughs> So right. and whether that was my mind saying you know the death bit is too scary mm. <laughs> um, but knowing that chemotherapy agents lead to infertility uh, in most cases um, when I was told that I would require chemotherapy um, that was the thing that went that was through your first because thought. I knew the toxicity to you the wanted ovaries. more children yep. yeah and I guess that was something that I thought was potentially more achievable than, the whole survival thing, um, and yeah, so um, so that was where I, uh, the original um, plan for my treatment, um, I actually started to, and that was where my my husband stepped in, um, because it was really difficult after I'd already had some surgery and yeah, by that stage, and um, and I just didn't want to have the chemotherapy that would make me infertile and i knew that being menopausal at the age of 28 was also going to open up you know a whole bunch yeah. of of sort of side effects and medical issues for life and um and so he said you know you're a medical researcher find something else just find another find another way and that was where i did find this clinical trial and as things happened we knew someone who was the medical uh, receptionist for the this fabulous oncologist um, at Prince of Wales Hospital. Uh, and he was part of this worldwide clinical trial. Um, and it was testing a new drug um, called Herceptin. Um, and at that stage, it was $30,000 to have the Herceptin wow. on its own. Plus, wow. I also needed to have the normal chemotherapy agents Um, but this particular clinical trial was testing um, a combination that was less likely to cause infertility Um, and so because it just the way that it um, this particular drug worked so so I managed to get an appointment um, with this oncologist Um, again sometimes it's who you know and unfortunately that was the situation here Um, and he I don't know he it was fabulous and um, and he ended up taking me on, um, but I did say to him that um, I would only you know go forward with the trial if I got into the arm that I wanted because the other two arms were going to be the cytotox well the the more cytotoxic treatment that would have caused infertility, infertility. and he yeah. said he understood completely um, and obviously I was the youngest. Um, person in the trial at the hospital at that at that time so um so I got into the arm that I wanted um, and so that began 12 months of chemotherapy and that was
1: a you know that was a situation that you'd made that decision that I am not I'm gonna fight I'm gonna fight this I'm gonna win this but I still want to be able to have children at the end of this as well so I think that was your you know am, am I right in thinking that was one of your driving factors as well as well as survival to get through I'm going to have children af- at the end of this as well.
2: It it really was, and um, you know, I've had people <laughs> say to me, you know, but didn't you think that you know you had cancer, so you're you going to you're um, going to give that to your any children, future children, or something like that? And I thought, my gosh, no, I never, I never, yeah. I never no. entered my mind. I just it was just a focus that that I had. How many I had people said that. I know
0: people oh, say true. things. Yeah. I know. But so, um, did you have more children?
1: I suppose as a as 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 a A father and a husband, Mm. and if you know, God forbid, anybody's ever in that situation. I would have been thinking, as a, as a, you know, selfishly as a man, Mm. I just need you to survive, and you've got to do what we've got one child, Mm. but we can't as as a male as well. We can't put ourselves in that situation, and and for you as a female wanting that more children, you know, I can see the strength in that as from a from a woman's perspective, Mm. but so so selfishly as a male, I would have just needed you to survive as my wife. And that I think that that partnership that you have between yourself and your husband, you know, has gotta be strong in that yes, we'll support you no matter what, but still very frightening for I can imagine for your husband in that situation.
2: Yeah, I think you nailed the Yeah. <laughs> you nailed it there. Yeah. Um Yeah, and that's the thing, I guess, that um, you know, later on i've um and now there is actually a big push around partners um and what is going what partners are going through when um when you know their loved one is going through a, a diagnosis they've got all these other thoughts and and really at that stage yeah i guess i just i had my focus Um, and yeah, but, um, but for Dave, he promised me as many children as I wanted afterwards, but that didn't come to fruition. (laughs) Now you've got lots of (laughs) children. Promises, promises, (laughs) but, um,
0: yes. I I think a huge part of a female's identity is, um, fertility and also, you know, having a a, a mastectomy, that would have been something really hard to, to process as a female. So how, how hard was that to process and make the decision? Like how, how did that whole process work? Mm -hmm
2: yeah that was a tough one so um so essentially I had finally had the lumpectomy even the breast surgeon that I went to see after getting these scans and the GP saying oh I'm really worried um, even the breast surgeon was like yeah no I'm 99.9% sure that this is not going to be cancer and and it was just me pushing that you know Can we just let, I just want to have a lumpectomy just to be sure. And so that happened on a Wednesday. Um, I stayed overnight on the Friday. I was at home with my son and um, my husband, Dave, came home from work and he said, have you heard? And I said, no, no, no. I said, they'd call if it was anything. Um, Again, head in the sand kind of thing. They'd call. And he said, look, just phone while I'm here, just so we, we know. And so I phoned the rooms and they phoned the pathologist and yeah, over the phone, I got the um yeah the message that no it's uh it is it's invasive breast cancer it's stage three and I said no no no, it can't be because you said (laughs) and um and the surgeon said oh look I'm really sorry and I said well it must be one of these rare types no 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 it's garden variety invasive ductal carcinoma you know I think you should come in oh no he actually didn't say come in Um, He said he was off uh, the next day on a rugby trip (laughs) to Europe. Life goes on for him. Oh, okay. That's how sure he was that I didn't have cancer. Um, And so I'd have to see a colleague of his on Monday, um, but he suspected that... needed to act quickly um and i needed to have a mastectomy i needed to have my ovaries removed um chemotherapy radiation it was all very dark and daunting so over the phone over the phone so um, and did you
0: know these people from work like personally oh okay no this was yeah no that makes it better because you probably
2: didn't want to see that (laughs) same doctor on monday (laughs) (laughs) oh no no so um Yeah, so that was so. Yeah, so the Monday we saw uh, another surgeon, and he booked me in for the next morning. So, um, yeah, it was pretty much I had no time, and I had no I had no choice. And I think that coming back to the question about the chemotherapy, that was my first choice. Yeah. So that was the first time that I felt like I got a little bit of control. Yeah. But prior to that, I just felt like everything was happening to me, and I I had nothing no control over it so yeah so essentially went into hospital like 6am or something um I woke up and yeah no yep so right breast completely gone so not just the breast but all of the lymph nodes under my arm um all of my chest wall so I can't do push-ups I have an excuse to not do (laughs) (laughs) push-ups um well I can do them but just one armed and I haven't got to yeah. that strength yet. But um so yeah, so it was it was awful. So but I just I didn't even know what it would look like. Yeah. Like I I didn't know whether they'd like it would be they'd put the skin over it. Like it was mm. just all these things in my head. I just I just didn't know what it would be, and
0: wow.
1: and this would, was all still in the same year. In the same. This year. is three
2: days later when she found out. No, I
1: realize. <laughs> I realize, but like I'm still trying <laughs> to get the path of the journey and the time yeah. frame. Yeah, like you so was s- being so strong, and you you, you said head in the yeah. sand. I don't believe for one minute.
0: <laughs> so it was like a month. You
1: over. had the head in the sand because you was you was facing it full on and making decisions, mm. and then this Maybe. was the point when.
2: Yeah, well, the surgery. I guess that was in the July, um, uh, and uh yeah coming into I think I started it must be in August I started chemo in the September but um yeah so the decisions the whole chemo story and everything came in the September but I think July August I was still just in a days and yeah. just yeah but um but yeah it was it was yes and I remember I didn't want to look at it and I didn't look at my chest for a while like mm. I you know, I said to my, my sister was living in Canberra and she was in the army and outfield and um, they brought her in um, and she came to Sydney and, and I, let, I said to her, just look at it and tell me it's not too gross. Oh. <laughs> um, but it was gross, but, you know, it was what it was. Well,
0: you've got to do things to survive unfortunately yeah sorry
2: I'm tearing up because
0: (laughs) it's it's incredible hearing the story like I just you don't even know about these sorts of things that go on until you hear it (laughs) from someone firsthand and
1: you mentioned um, meeting other people in this situation other women Mm -hmm. in this situation and you've become a a big advocate for cancer research and um, you know charity work and raising funds and awareness and you know, Alice and I are sat here, and we can see how how strong you are. And, yeah, it's incredible. You know, and then the and the you know the unbelievable time frame that this all happened to you, and at such a young age. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you've gone on and to to try and support people in this situation? And mm-hmm. you know, even now, you know, 28 is still very young, and and it is happening, but it's still of an older, usually around an older age level. Um, So how have you gone about your recovery after the mastectomy and and, and being an amazing survivor of cancer yourself?
0: I suppose knowledge is power. So telling your story, I suppose, would have had a huge...
2: Yeah, so I guess I... um, So straight after I went back to work (laughs) because... Well, I was (laughs) working. Sure. (laughs) I didn't... I had a little bit of leave, but I still was in that mindset that this isn't going to stop me like life I was, must go life on because you just
1: got a new baby you just think, got a, yep. a new job and, fabulous job and yeah. you
2: don't want to not be you know no. um and again the pressures of my career um were that I was already working part-time because you know of having um a young um son and my husband was away a lot so um I knew I had to publish I still had to get grants I still had to go to work and do experiments and get data and (laughs) write that up Mm. so um so I did keep I did push on and then I think um I got to breaking point and that was when I just um I left Sydney and came back to Brisbane so that's where um most of my support network were um and uh, um I had enough of cancer, so I actually went out of cancer research, um, and was very fortunate that QT have always given me a job. <laughs> I've returned there many times, and uh, and so one of the fabulous professors there um, uh, was setting up a laboratory looking at um, adult stem cell research. So actually trying to take stem cells um, from uh, joints and uh, try and uh, essentially treat those um, cells with certain factors to make them become, say, bone or, you know, fatty tissue or whatever. Mm. Um, so I set up, I basically had a job there. So I stopped doing anything cancer because I was really over cancer mm. at that point. Yeah. Understandably. With good reason, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And so did that kind of research, um, uh, that project, um, again, working part time. Um, and then I think I had just pushed myself to breaking point and I took a break from work um, and my son was um, starting school um, and I really wanted to focus on the baby idea again um, because thankfully uh, I, it didn't appear that I'd become infertile um, from the treatment and um, and so I just wanted to get myself healthy again um, and I'd also thought that I could have an impact as far as sharing my story. Um, well, I didn't actually... Sh- at that point, I wasn't sharing my story so much as um, just trying to raise um, awareness for the fact that a younger person could be um, mm. could be diagnosed. Um, and so I became involved with um, uh, a couple of different groups, but Cancer Council um, and also um, the Wesley Choices Program down in Brisbane, um, and uh, and also I think. Uh, The uh, In any breast cancer charity, I think I was um, sort of putting my hand up to say, you know, we'll go door to door, you know, um, raising money. And then it seemed that telling my story, I could actually um, raise a lot more funds and a lot more awareness um, for both breast cancer treatment and research, um, as well as as awareness of being diagnosed at a younger age, that it was a possibility, um, but also the issues of somebody being diagnosed at a younger age. And so that's where, mm. um, you know, the issues of the, you know, sort of self-image um, as well as the issues around fertility. Mm. Um, I'd ended up having to have a second mastectomy as well, um, right. which was a year after the first uh, because I had lumps in the other side and it was just let's not take yeah, let's not go the there. risk. Yeah. So so, um, so that happened. But, um, but, yeah, so once I decided to um, rebuild myself, so I had a reconstruction. So um, I do joke that everything will become floppy and but the boobs will still be perky. So you've got to have some good bits. So yeah. um, so that um, that's that that happened and uh, and then yeah, trying to get healthy, um, working with these um, different charities and, and hospital groups and just support groups. Um, and you know, I I would be put on the phone to another younger. Um, woman who was diagnosed and just talk about you know just to be there and say yep. you can get out the mm. other end and and listening really, not a lot of talking in those situations. you're just listening and they know that you've got to the other side a mm. little bit. Um, and I think that in, yeah. that
1: in itself so inspirational to to be, mm. you know for them to believe that somebody, just was what they're starting to go through. Yeah, that's that, it. That you've got through that and and it can be done. That's so, it. Yeah. Yeah, we 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 can see you you I believe you and know, I mm. can see you had a really good positive mindset mm. um up to the point that you didn't have a choice, but then mm. you know, that's that seems very important in these situations.
2: Mm. I hope so. I do hope so. But mm. um but that uh yeah, so I I did that and then um we moved to the UK. Um, and so I lived in England for two years uh, and so this is where all the career <laughs> interruptions have happened um, but I uh, had the opportunity uh, we were um, uh, representing the, the High Commission in London so I got to do set essentially, representative um, Australian duties. So uh, what did we do? Pop quizzes on Australian trivia. We um, set up, uh, we actually had um, a function hall that was a 13th century um, Gilbertine Priory that um, wow. we got to organise um, parties. and. So it's
0: completely unrelated to
2: medical Absolutely. Work. Yeah, I <laughs> love that. Yeah. But I did get bored and so at that stage I um, had uh, sent out my CV to the local unis and said, you know, happy to do some, some mm-hmm. lectures and at that point, I didn't think I was a very good teacher. I didn't think I was a very good lecturer. I always felt that I just did a rubbish job. I lectured um, students at Sydney Uni and just always came away thinking, oh, I was that was terrible. And I'd done some lecturing at, at QUT and, and I just thought, oh, I'm just not good at this. But in the UK, I, I actually, my student group were um, much more diverse, um, a lot of international students. And I actually felt, well, I was voted the star of Bedfordshire for our particular wow. area, and it was simply because of my empathy um, and the, the patience that I had with, with this particular group. So, um, and I actually came away thinking, yeah, I can do this. Like mm. uh, lecturing is actually, I found my passion. I loved research, but mm. I really think I can make a difference um, as a lecturer. So um, when we came back, um, my PhD supervisor um, at QUT, um, you know, because obviously this Star of Bedfordshire thing was a, a <laughs> thing, and he's like, Can I have the Star of Bedfordshire lecturer? Do you have that for on your us? resume? <laughs> no, I don't. I sure not <laughs> But <laughs> it was very cute. But um, uh, And again, you know, those students were just, it was just wonderful. It was, yeah. I think, about 120 students and, you know, a lot of them are on LinkedIn and with me and, you know, have continued on their journeys. And mm. um, But I felt I made a difference. So coming back, um, yeah, went into more of a lecturing position back at, at QUT. Mm. Um, and then um, fast forward a few years, had an opportunity to get back into research and so I had some wonderful colleagues um, at QUT who always would give me a, a you know, if I wanted to, to do something, they would um, always, um, you know, include me in their, their projects. Mm. And uh, and again, I love to train students in the laboratory. I still had that passion for for Teaching science. Teaching and... Yeah, and I, I did get the passion back for the cancer research because I started to reflect on the stories that I'd hear um, from other um, you know, not just the younger women, but um, older women thinking about why did they, why why was it them? You know, what was it that not they did, but what what why did they actually? Why were they the ones who were diagnosed, and maybe their sister wasn't? Or so looking yeah, okay. at that whole because um, most breast cancer is actually not hereditary. So it was what are the other factors, and can we yeah. use those factors to you know better identify mm. who's at risk. Um, and so that's what drove um, some of my research uh, and then the other research was around the psychosocial impacts of following treatment so you got the big things about the body image Mm. and um, and you know just the fact that you've you know you've lost your you know your your identity in a Mm. lot of cases Um, your career has taken a massive hit Mm. Um, uh, you know your relationships you know again you know it's a big factor around, you know, the children. Mm. Um, you know, thankfully my son was only two, so he doesn't really remember um no. the story. Oh, I don't know whether I should tell this story. Hopefully Nick will never listen to it. <laughs> um, when I um when I had my reconstruction. Um, Nick saw me and um, you know, I Basically, because it was bandages and all the rest of it, and I didn't have the nipple reconstruction until a little bit yeah. later, because you go to the whole works. And um, and he looked at me and goes, "Oh, oh, mummy, where are your pimples?" <laughs> <laughs> So um, that's yes. a good twenty-first story. <laughs> He's really oh, yeah. No <laughs> stories like that. But anyway, you might have to wipe that one. I might get in trouble. No, I'm keeping it. <laughs> we'll send
1: it to Nick.
2: <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so, um, so then, and um, yeah, so that was terrific. And what I ended up applying for some funding um, from the National Breast Cancer Foundation for for research. Um, but unfortunately, I wasn't competitive because I had all these breaks in my career, and that's that's the issue with. Um, with a lot of careers is that they don't you know you can't factor that in it's very difficult um, to explain that um, when it's all about numbers it's all about how many research papers have you got it's not how many research papers have you got in how many years you were active you know it's and it's hard I don't don't know what and also living through
1: what you've lived through and the experience that you'd gained from from your experience and that's
2: it that's it thank you Dave you just you hit that you hit the nail on the head there the I think my life experience is probably more than writing, you know, an extra, yeah, know, an extra
0: yeah. paper Publications, yeah. yeah. So just on that, um, just for our listeners, because obviously you work for a university and you're researching and lecturing and, you know, you're an associate professor. Can you talk through how that sort of works and how it works um, having a career as a researcher and just go into a bit more detail on how how that, how that does work?
2: good question yeah so I don't get it and I work for a university <laughs> it is really difficult and different disciplines uh, have different models um, in biomedical side so that's the research that leads to you know better uh, treatments for medical conditions better diagnoses um, diagnostic tests that kind of thing um, and also prevention uh, medicine so you can either go the research so this different pathways, but research only. So um, where you are relying for the most part on funding, external funding from organisations, government organisations, so the National Health and Medical Research Council is one of the big ones, um, or other charities, so Cancer Council, um, those kind of um, funds, Prostate Cancer Foundation and National Breast Cancer Foundation for Breast Cancer. Um, If you don't get that funding, then you you don't have a job. Wow. So it's not it's not a very secure um, yeah. pathway, um, but uh, the more secure pathway is as a research teaching academic. Right. Mm. So that's where your um, position has a research component as well as you teach um, undergraduate students. So
0: now, like if we it down a percentage, how much of your time would be research and how much is teaching?
2: I'd like it to be more, um, but uh, within our workload model, it's 20% um, for research. Okay, um, that's yes. not that high, is it's, it? It's, it's not high. Um, and it's, again, it differs in different disciplines. Um, yeah. For our research, it's very laboratory intensive. Mm. Mm. Um, so my research projects at the moment, I have one, that's the collaboration with Toowoomba Hospital. Um, so that involves actually going and getting um, tissue clinical samples, bringing them back to the laboratory, and then doing analyses in the laboratory. Um, and that takes time. Yeah. Um, you know, the travel, going to the hospital, uh, every time a new um, patient um, is available, then that's another trip. Uh, to do yeah. that um, and then I'll talk about the wounds um, research yeah. later on but um, if we have time but uh, <laughs> yes <yeah>, so um <laughs> the um, uh, yeah so that's per- essentially what it is and then service as well fits into an yeah. academic role so the service is where I maximize my service in um, uh, doing outreach so that's going out into schools um, trying to you know to sell the the amazingness of, of science and um, and the amazingness of, of USQ. Mm-hmm.
0: Just on the research, I mean, one thing I've never quite wrapped my head around is with research, do you ever get a result? Like, a do you ever hit, find an answer to things? Or do you, is it just constant research that you could work it's on a for in yes. a finite amount of years? It
2: depends. You're always, you're contributing to the bigger picture. Yeah. So there are some research breakthroughs and they do occur, but every single you know, little research project is contributing to a bigger picture. Of course, there's going to be, you know, those, um, you know, eureka moments and that's it. So the, mm. you know, eureka moment finding the drug that was used to target my cancer, for example, um, you know, that was, that research was done, contributed to by laboratories worldwide, mm-hmm. but it was a laboratory at the University of California um, that actually came up with the the research that then made a pharmaceutical company invest in that laboratory and that Research so, group to take that through to a drug.
0: How does that work? Because obviously, that people be researching biomedical science all around the world. How do you share that sort of information and make sure that no one's? Well, I'm
2: sure there's probably other people doing the
0: exact same stuff that you are and research and the same things.
2: There are absolutely so that's where the competitiveness comes in. But everything's um, published, right. so you either go and present at conferences, which has been quite difficult this past Mm. year so zoom has you know allowed some conferences but generally it's about collaborating with other laboratories that are doing similar research to you um you know traveling and networking uh and and again publishing your research um is the biggest thing so there are journals that are peer-reviewed journals so by other biomedical scientists um and then and Essentially, publishing so that'd
0: take you a long time as well to write all those journals. So. Write the articles. It, the articles. It does. Yeah. Yep. So that wow. all has to
2: fit into your 22 workload. Yeah. So yeah. so it's amazing. A, yeah. So a research teaching. There's benefits to both. To me, I always want to be doing research because that informs my teaching. So yep. I yeah. need to be teaching. So your the right students stuff. get a lot more from exactly from what you're teaching. Yeah. yeah. And my teach and my students can be. You know, our students will like go on and be um, uh, researchers or they'll Successful. go on and do medicine um, or our med lab scientists yeah. will go on and work in pathology labs. Yeah. So, you know, you want to be at the cutting edge yourself uh, as much as you can to be able to teach yeah. the right yeah. stuff. So
1: you touched on research and funding and mm. um, we understand in 2020 you secured some funding for some um, research out west in the Indigenous communities. Mm. Can you tell us a, a little bit about that? And there's a, there's a few people that you're collaborating along with that with that research project.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It was really exciting and it it was um it was one of those Uh, kind of the the intersection of everything happening um, for the right reason. So I'd um, always had these chats with uh, one of my colleagues from nursing, um, Associate Professor Raylene Ward, um, and another colleague, um, Vicky Horner, who's also, she's the Indigenous support um, person in uh, the School of Nursing. Um, And uh, they're both um, Aboriginal women uh, and research, uh, Indigenous research. Um, And so we'd always talked about doing something, but everyone was so busy you know, always so busy. And I'd just come back from being in the US for two years and only working a 0.5, um, so a um, 50% appointment. So I actually had some time. <laughs>
1: <laughs> for the um, first time in a long for time. For the first
2: time, I'd yeah. actually had some time. So so um, I happened to pond Raylene. Again, these are the things that don't happen when you're working from home. We happened pond each other in the hallway and, um, Had a conversation, she's like, Yep, I've got some time. And uh, then the person, um, researcher in the office next door to me, is Associate Professor Kate Cowter. She'd been having a separate conversation with Helen Nutter, who is a chronic wounds um, nurse um, also at USQ, um, around better ways to treat wounds. Helen Jackie, associate professor Jackie Lee and Raylene had just um, uh, embarked in a research on a research project with Gilbrey um, uh, Medical Service in Toowoomba, which is uh, an Aboriginal um, health service, uh, and St Vincent's Hospital, and so they were looking at improving the um, the way that wounds were were treated. Um, so Gilbrey learning from St Vincent's chronic um, uh, chronic wounds uh, nurses, and so I thought, well, um, and then Kate. Um, was looking at she was a microbiologist Um, I'm so those those little molecules that are involved in cancer cell invasion they're also involved in wounds mm. <laughs> so they when they're imbalanced they actually and they're in mean, clams no. They're, <laughs> no i changed completely uh, from that but, uh, they're,
1: but not the wound, they're not in clams
2: <laughs> well they may well be we yeah. haven't looked <laughs> i'm sure somebody has looked um but uh so those um those uh, they're called matrix metalloproteases those mmp's also if they're too high they'll stop a wound from healing and so a wound that would normally heal you know after you know when you cut your it takes a couple of days, um, and generally by a week, the skin sort of covered over it. In a chronic wound, those MMPs just keep um, being produced, um, and the wound doesn't, doesn't heal. Hail. So, this has huge ramifications um, for if you're living in a remote community um, because. Often, again, like I, I guess I did, um, circling back to putting your head in the sand. Often, you wait till it gets really bad um, until you actually see someone about it. Um, and so, what Raylene knew, she'd actually been um, a, a wounds nurse in some of these areas, um, and she knew that one of the barriers to actually seeking treatment was the fact that that um, uh, those patients didn't want to leave their communities. Mm. So they didn't want to. They knew that if they went and saw a doctor in, you know, or a nurse or whatever, where they were living, they would send them to Toowoomba or even worse, to Brisbane um, for treatment. And so they wouldn't get it treated. Right. And so um, looking at the statistics, and not a lot has been done in this space, which is why we wrote the grant. um, But looking at the statistics, um, you know, it's, I think, 62% um, greater incidence of amputation Kid, um, uh, people with uh, an Indigenous background. So this was um, a yeah. study done in um, in Northern Queensland, out of JCU. I will end up with amputation um, from a, a chronic wound. That's a massive so amount just indigenous Yeah, yep. from a,
1: yeah. a simple wound that yep. could have been treated.
0: Exactly. I am paranoid so about like wounds. Like. <laughs> I'll have a tiny cut. So my grandfather died of septicemia. Like he had a tiny cut in his hand and it went internal and he ended up dying. So now I get a tiny neck and I'm like, betadine everywhere. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and again, betadine, you know, it's it's yeah. an antiseptic. So it's going to kill any of the um, microbes that are living there. So any of the bacteria that might cause and that's mm. what will um, lead to septicemia. But for the most part, with a strong immune system, your body's able to fight Um, to fight any kind Mm. of you know um, uh, bug so it doesn't actually get into your system like what happened to your grandfather but um, what we are looking at is the normal the treatments that are used, um, but we're trying to improve the way that that happens within the in Aboriginal the medical services right. in those communities, as opposed to just that knowledge all sitting in big centres like um, Toowoomba and and Brisbane. Yeah. Actually, getting that that um, out. Um, the other thing that we're wanting to do is actually look at some of the traditional um, bush medicines that have been used um, and test what their bioactivity is, because that's mm. my bit is the the yeah, you know wow. the, the biological stuff. Yeah. So we have some um, models of of skin cells that we grow in the laboratory so we can actually look to see if some of these bush medicines can impact on the levels of the matrix metalloproteases wow. um, and or can they also impact on the microbes so can they kill some of the bacteria which is where kate's expertise comes in so it's a whole you know it's all these people that all have um this background, uh, and we also have um, a colleague who is uh, a, um, a medical doctor, and he has um, been um, a senior executive in multiple hospitals out west, but also most recently um, at Royal Brisbane, uh, Martin Byrne. So, and Martin can give the, I guess, the experience of um, from the medical um, perspective um, about the best way to actually get this from. An idea and a concept in the laboratory into these um, into these medical services and make it mainstream. So, so you've got yeah.
1: a, you've got such a, a, a diverse team of um, colleagues that are, are, are pitching into this research project, all in education yourselves. Is part of this research then going to be to educate the the, the nurses, let's say, in the um, indigenous communities are or... Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So
2: that's one of our main aims. Yeah. Um so that is uh, so we've got you know multiple aims but one of the main ones is actually that some of that training that we've already seen to be successful between St Vincent's and Goldbury actually apply that in three other Uh, medical services, so Kunnamulla, we have Gladstone, and we also have Sherberg, Um, so apply that same model that we've seen to be successful, but with the addition um, of also um, enabling those um, uh, nurses and health workers to be able to be involved in the research. So by taking a a little bit of the wound fluid, um, and then we test that wound fluid, they're also going to be involved from a research perspective as Mm well. Um, We have, what have we got? We've got two honours students. um, we're trying to convince one of the fabulous nurses at um, who's just graduated from USQ um, at Goldberry, um for her to embark on, on her PhD um, in the on the project. Um, but um, yeah, I'm sure we'll yeah. The whole part of this is uh, training um, and you know giving opportunities for for more education. Absolutely, wow. so, amazing. so
1: so amazing. You're so inspirational. Um, you know, from going through your ordeal with breast cancer to teach in, to teaching the next generation.
0: I mean, you don't live an everyday life. No, you
1: do. That's <laughs> you're why You're too good for this podcast. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's absolutely unbelievable what you're, you know, what you've gone through, but your journey has been amazing to listen to. And um, we can't thank you enough for taking the time out this afternoon to uh, speak to us and and Hopefully our listeners will get a lot from, I'm sure they will get a lot from this and uh, there'll be young females out there that are actually going through what what you went through at such a young age and um, hopefully we can inspire them, you can inspire them um, to carry on
0: fighting through this. Yeah. Thanks, guys. So we do have a few questions that we like to ask our guests. Well, the one guest we've had so far, and now you, the yeah, second, second guest.
1: <laughs> second guest on Up Next.
0: I make it sound like we've been doing this podcast for years. Mm-hmm. But
1: but don't forget we're international. Yeah.
0: You are. <laughs> Very Absolutely. true. All right. So the first one we're going to ask is who are you following on social channels at the moment? So anyone funny, inspiration? It could be anyone.
2: Look, I there's no one in particular, and I thought, you know, I could – sound really clever and um you know make something up um <laughs> because i am actually following you know i follow uh united nations i follow um i follow um ridiculous things like science humor so i can be a complete nerd and have silly jokes up on you know facebook and on on my study desk and in my slides um what else i love that I, <laughs> we would have
0: polar opposite instagram <laughs> yeah. feeds on, and twitter feeds i <laughs> <laughs> I think. I'm just like interior design, fashion, like yeah. reality. T- I'm actually surprised you've got the
1: time to look at in yeah, social media. True. So the of you know, that you a do. A little
2: bit, but um, yeah. So oh, can I be boring and just yeah? No, no like, not Nothing at all. in particular. Um, it's a hard question. It, it is. And I went back and actually had a look at who I was following. But um, yeah,
0: um, yeah. Hmm. No. <laughs> all right. That's all good. A second question. So. We both think that change can be led through conversation. I suppose that's why we wanted to start this podcast. So what is a conversation that you'd like our listeners to have at the dinner table tonight?
2: Okay. So I guess um, uh, with being involved in the research um, project, uh, I've had the opportunity to visit communities um, uh, out west, so in Karnamala, uh, in Charleville, um, and, uh, you know, and, and again, work with uh, other inspiring people such as um, Yvonne um, O'Neill in the Deadly Ways team um, and uh, the lovely Emily Montgomery. Uh, and so, with all of that, I guess I would like the conversation um, in Australian households to be more around um, our, you know, our First Nations people and the fact that it is amazing that we live in a land that has a culture um, that has been around for at least 40,000 years, maybe even 60,000 years. I think that that is truly amazing and we have so much to learn um, from that culture, from um, from those communities, um, from um, our um, Aboriginal um, friends and and family. So, um, with that, I think uh, if you have kids, I think it would be lovely to maybe read a Dreamtime story. Yeah. Um, there is there's some beautiful um, websites out there, and there's one that I think I've got on one of my Twitter feeds or something around um, Dreamtime.net.au. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think that's what I would. That's what I would like.
1: Great all right well last but not least we like to ask all our um our two guests that we've had (laughs) (laughs) um Uh, a wine a wine recommendation for our next guest
2: oh look i drink any wine (laughs) i'm not very (laughs) fuzzy And I know there's some whole links with alcohol and cancer, but you know, um, but uh, I've drink more since after after breast cancer. But um, uh, look, I would probably just recommend um, buying local, trying local at least. So in Toowo- I like that. Yeah. Mm. So we have the Ballandine Estate, uh, we mm. have Preston Peak uh, wineries. Um, so I would try, yeah, I would try something local, um, buy local, and um, and support these wineries because a lot of them are really struggling. They are really I love doing that. Yeah. So. so you don't.
0: Mm. Live on a winery like Yvonne does. No,
2: I, I told you I was boring. I told you I was. There is yes, nothing. Not there is nothing all. boring
1: about what you've spoke to us today about. No, so. yeah. but
2: certainly no. No, Ivon only a little bit. Um, but yeah, so that's what I would recommend. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Mm-hmm. This
0: this has been incredible, and I've been so inspired, and I nearly teared up when you were tearing up before. It's yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. You've, you've lived an incredible life.
1: So. I absolutely, have, and you know I can't. We can't thank you enough for, for taking the time in today. Um. Up next, we'll be joined by Mr. Keegan Pierce, um, who was recently nominated for Young Australian of the Year in the Ipswich community. Um, he will be with us on Friday, the 26th of February. So tune in, listeners. <laughs>